I'm Aaron Good, and this is part 18 of Minding the Darkness, Minding the Light, our oral history series with Professor Peter Dale Scott. Finally, resuming again after Peter had to take some time off to beat COVID and triple pneumonia and finish three books and celebrate his 95th birthday. In this episode, Peter recounts his experiences back in the 1970s, working on a documentary for the CBC television news show, The Fifth Estate, and this documentary was a report on the JFK assassination and a critical look at the evidence. Professor Peter Dale Scott, it's great to have you back with us. Yeah, it's been a while, but I'm, I've, I've missed seeing your face on my screen. I'm glad to see it again. Well, you've been working on a number of books, and there's a the, there's the book on Milos, and there's the book on Enmindment, which remind me what you changed the name to? Reading, Reading the Dream, the is that dream right? a post-secular history of Enmindment, which Very is good. all kind of mystifying what, what is Enmindment. Um, but I, I talk a lot about Yang and Yin in the book about sharp, uh, accurate thinking, which is yang, and then fuzzy, poetic dreaming thinking, was yin. And I'm arguing that we're too much yang these days, so I g gave a rather yin title. Well, I think that that is a good, a good title, and I have described you in the past as a dialectical Taoist, um, uh, because I taught. I was fortunate enough to teach East Asian history, and you studied Taoism and Buddhism, and I um, those give me an appreciation of your work in strange ways. And then when you referenced some Tang Dynasty poetry yeah. and such, that really amazed me. And then thinking about Taoism and uh, some of the ways you would have to write these things, I mean, it's a very it's it is fascinating. Taoism Taoism is in some ways a kind of poetic formulation of like. What late what we in the West would think of as di the dialectical, you know, dialectical processes. So it's well, when I wrote a trilogy of poetry, uh, the last volume was full of quotations from the Tao Te Ching, and in the current book, reading the dream, which I say is an attempt to give a prose equivalent of my poetic trilogy, uh, I say quite a lot about both Taoism and Buddhism. More Buddhism, but Taoism, both as a, both as a kind of thought process, and also as a historic event, after the first, um, the Qin, is it the first dynasty? Is it the Han dynasty? Qin, whatever the first Chinese dynasty is, you have. Well, I believe that I think Taoism emerges from that. If I recall correctly, and it's been years since I taught this, I believe that it emerges in the during the. Um, even earlier, I believe it emerges during the uh, the Zhou Dynasty, the one that precedes the yes, Warring State yes, period. Yes, but but you see, there are two phases of it. At least that's what okay. I, I argued that as an actual uh, religion, apocalyptic, uh, revealed to a man on the mountain, which is quite different from the spirit of Zhuangzi and Lao Tzu, uh, that came uh, in reaction to the. Um, the, the the establishment of the first empire it was a kind of protest movement, but it's very it's it parallel in time to Christianity, which was also a kind of protest movement too. To you know, I, I believe also they become a more. I don't know if this is what you're thinking of or if this is an echo of that, but I believe that the yellow turban uprising, which heralds the end of the Han Dynasty, yeah. that they were a Taoist cult, basically. That's what I'm talking of, about, exactly. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's what leads to the beginning of the Three Kingdoms period, which is a really epic and much romanticized uh, time period in in Chinese history. Right. 
Well, I, I, I think our viewers have not come to hear about about the yellow turbans. Well, you'd be surprised. I've had people ask about me doing a Chinese history series sometime, and I may actually do it, but I think you're generally correct. And uh, so we should move on. Although the last thing I will say about Taoism is that I do have two quotes in my book, uh, as I recall, from one from the Tao Te Ching and one from the Zhuangzi. And the one from the Tao the Te Ching, I believe, is uh, something to the effect of like, don't look too deeply uh, at, the, at the fishes that swim very deep, at the vital tools of the state, something to that effect. I mean, it's a strange formulation of like deep politics, and it's saying, be careful looking too closely at the vital tools of the state because uh, the waters are very deep and it's uh, dangerous. Yes. And then there's another well, one I that say says... something like that too, more in my poetry. <laughs> and then there's another quote, which I do think was from the, the Zhuangzi, which is, uh, the sage is the sharpest tool in the, the box of the, of the empire. Yeah, yeah, yes. I've, I, 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 know, I know that quote, right? I don't use right. it, but I know it. So let's talk about uh, something that was, chronologically, we sort of passed over it, but you've mentioned that it was worth discussing, and then when the more you told me about it, I agreed with you and thought it was fascinating. Um, your, the documentary that you made, you made a documentary for Canadian television uh, on the Kennedy assassination, and you wanted to talk about that experience, or you thought it was worth discussing, and I, I definitely agree. So can you give us a background of how that project came to be yes well it's uh, um it's th a number of things happened first of all of course i didn't make the show it was the standard uh investigative journalism show of the canadian broadcasting corporation it was called the fifth estate and it had a very gifted uh, director brian mckenna and he's the one who made the show and originally, they were they. I committed to travel with them, and help them interview various people they wanted to interview. Uh, the uh, anchor for the show was a woman called uh, Oh dear, <laughs> I knew her so well. Um, anyway, she went on to be the governor general, but. Uh, the, the show got sued, and that meant specifically that she got sued and had to turn up in court for the whole time that they made the show. <clears throat> so in that sense, I was not just somebody helping to interview other people, but I became, in effect, the anchor. I, I asked all the questions myself and interviewed people. Because at the very end, when they did a follow-up, uh, there was more than a year later, she was back on the show and anchored the last bit. But um, I, it's, it, it's not usual. for It was just this freak accident that I, I, I did play a rather prominent role in the making of the show because I, I chose the people to interview and interviewed them myself. And the first what was person the we was had the to interview. What was the lawsuit about? I just remember it was in millions of dollars. It was a very big one, and historically, I, I I just don't remember. It had nothing to do with me. It was some much earlier show. Oh, okay. It wasn't for the JFK episode then. No, it had nothing to do with the, the current okay, show. Well, I'm sorry. They, that, they that, went that to a different sense. show every week, and even the show that we're talking about was originally just 45 minutes because they had a little segment about something else for 15 minutes. And later, when it, it attracted international attention and people wanted to buy an hour show, we went back and filmed uh, what the... Um, House committee had said about shooting from the school book depository, and I remember the date very vividly, January the 11th, 1979, because it was my 50th birthday. And on my 50th birthday, I was holding a broom rod in my hand and pointing it where there would have been uh, the shots fired at the open convertible if they had been shot, and there was a tree in the way. Uh, something like that. Um, so the first person that we absolutely had to interview because the CBC is committed to getting as much Canadian content as possible 
there was a young man in Quebec City who had just turned up who said he knew Lee Harvey Oswald a year before the assassination. And so there was no question. We had to go up and interview this man. And we met him, and uh, he had a translator because he was French-Canadian. Uh, he didn't need an interpreter because I spoke French, and uh, I went with Susan Farkas, and she spoke French. But we let the interpreter do the interpreting. She did a good job of interpreting. But it's memorable in my mind because at a certain point when he was saying that what Oswald had said to him, and I said, just, but I said to him, exactly where were you at that moment when he said that to you? And there was a long silence. And then this young man turned to the interpreter and said, Où est-ce que j'étais ce moment-là? Where was I at that precise moment? <laughs> and the interpreter told him what he was supposed to have said. So that, of course, was the end of that interview. But it taught me, first of all, it taught me that there were higher forces interested in this show. And it also, that these higher forces, oh, I forgot to mention that the interpreter had a full-time job in the Quebec civil service, the civil service of the province of Quebec. But she wasn't doing this for the province of Quebec. She was doing it for, shall we say, another higher power. And that it spoke to me to the scope and extent of that higher power that could uh, be interested in this show in that way. And there was further interest. We'll get, we'll get to other episodes that confirm that interest. Yeah, because you speak enough French that you wouldn't even need an interpreter, right? Well, yes, but I mean, I, I don't mind that they, you know, it, they couldn't have they, well, they wanted the they wanted the interpreter for some other reason. It was more of a handler or something. Yes, she was a handler, like. and he had to go to the handler for, to know where he was. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. um, it's, uh, that there's there's other cases like that in the Kennedy case, like Marina, Marina Oswald herself saying, "Is that the right answer?" Right? Didn't she do things like that when she was being interviewed? Yeah. Yes, and of course she had a series of handlers, a succession yeah. of them. That's a that's a whole show in itself, actually. But of course. That, that's not, not for today. Um, the next one is not interference, but I thought it was kind of significant. I interviewed Albert Jenner in Chicago. He was the assistant counsel of the Warren Commission, who was charged with the question of investigating whether there had been conspiracies or not. And I did a very simple thing. I took volume 26 of the hearings, and there's a page with six different photographs, all alleged to be of Oswald. And I put the page in front of him, and it was all on camera. And I said, look at that page. You Are you going to tell me these are all of the same person? And then all was on camera, there was a very long silence, very, very long silence, as if he had never looked at the page before. And then he said in a kind of shaken voice, he said, well, I think these two are two out of six. And they didn't use that. I thought that was just such a demonstration of how superficial the, the, uh, the Warren Commission investigation had been that they could put in these various photographs and the man in charge of investigating conspiracies had probably never looked at it before and was buffaloed by it, stymied by it. But what is right. a, a definite, uh, I would say, sign of, of interest in the show, we went to New Orleans and somebody in the show booked us into the town and country motel in Metairie which is a suburb of New Orleans. And this was pretty shocking to me because the town and country mot uh, motel was not only known to me, but was quite notorious at the time because there was a lot of in press interest in the time of, of, in Carlos Marcello. And this was a motel which was owned and controlled by Carlos Marcello. And my interest was... Um, if anything, increased by the fact that they put me in a room on the ground floor, uh, just level with the parking lot, and the door of the 
room wouldn't shut. It was just a two-inch gap. You shut it as far as you could, but there was still a two-inch gap. And they said, oh, don't worry. There's a ball and chain there. You can lock yourself in securely with the ball and chain. So I didn't worry too much about it. At two in the morning, I was woken up by a bright light because a sheriff's car from the Metairie sheriffs, who, by the way, were also notoriously controlled, I would almost say owned by Carlos Marcello. He owned Metairie, and that was his suburb, um, or one of his suburbs. Um, a squad car had come in and was using that two-inch gap to beam a searchlight onto my bed, and it, the searchlight moved around and did everything, looked and looked and looked, and they only found one person in the bed, which I think may have been a disappointment to them. And later, uh, I had to wonder. There was some. There was somebody on that show who later said, "You know, Peter, it's a shame we never had an affair together." Well, I was married at the time, happily married, and uh, it hadn't occurred to me to have an affair with her. But I wondered if she was the woman who made this extraordinary choice of booking us into the town and country motel. In other words, did the did the higher powers have have a presence right in our own show? I don't know, but 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 that this goes beyond coincidence. I think that the sheriffs turned up and beamed that search. I had the one room where they could do that, um, and then I again. I this is. Uh, uh, I think this is worth narrating. It's, it's, it's an anecdote in a slightly different dimension. But we went to Miami, and I interviewed a mid-level uh, gangster, of my own, someone known to me, but I would say not known to the general public at all. And he happened to say to me, and just in a conversation, not being taped, um, we, we, we had quite a long conversation and an intimate, a good one, you know, and I think he appreciated having someone who knew and paid attention to things he had done in his life, you know, it made him feel important, which he was in my, in my eyes. And he said, of course, in those days, we were doing everything closely with the CIA. And when I, the director heard that, he was in there for the interview, and he said uh, later, when it was just the two of us, he said, Peter, you've got to wear a wire and get him to say that again. And I said, Brian, I'm not going to wear a wire. And he said, why not? And I said, uh, he made it quite clear that this, this would be very dangerous for, for He warned me not to share it, and uh, he could get killed. And he said, but that's not for you to worry about. Your job is to get it on wire. And I said, it's not my job. And he said, you're a journalist. I said, I'm not a journalist. I'm a human being with a moral conscience. And that that told me something about the, wor the world of journalism as it was then, that you you just do your job. And I've had, I, I, I think the world is, if there's something wrong with the world in the 21st century, it said there are a lot of people doing their job and not consulting their conscience. And so um, that's why I wanted to work that anecdote in. Brian was a wonderful director, by the way. I, I, he was doing, you know, he was a journalist and he was a good journalist. And I'm very sad that, you know, we continued to be friends, but we were never friends. Things were never quite as friendly after I let him down from his point of view on not getting that statement on tape, which I'm very glad I didn't. And now, what do we come to next? Um, this is the, the show has been aired in November 1977. And about two years later, I go to the National Archives in Maryland, and I'm looking things up. And I think I looked up my own name to see what they had on me. And one of the documents I found, I had interviewed Warren DeBruis, who's an FBI, FBI agent then at the time in New Orleans, uh, who's a very important, figures very largely in 
the accounts of people who write about what what went on in the making of the Warren Report. Warren De Bruis was a FBI agent in New Orleans who, before the assassination, was in charge of overseeing what the Cuban groups in New Orleans were doing. One of those groups was called the Directorio Revolucionario de Estudiantil, the DRE, we'll, we'll say. And its leader, Carlos Branguier, had two very puzzling interviews and encounters with Oswald. In the first one, Oswald was pretending to be a anti-Castro Marine who wanted to go and help in covert operations. And in the second one, he was pretending to be a pro-Castro member of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Obviously, he was pretending in one of those two interviews, and I would say, actually, he was pretending in both. I think he was a low-level informant for the FBI, and I could I developed that case in my book, uh, Deep Politics. He'd have to go beyond being just an informant, though, right? I mean, whatever he was doing in New Orleans, you seemed to be on assignments. Like Yes, well, informant covers a lot of things. I, I get I, I get what you mean. I'm sure you yes, it's would a, know you have to use well, as well as well. Quotation marks. Yeah. But anyway, so De Bruis must have been aware of Oswald before the assassination, though he doesn't show up in the Oswald uh, FBI file, as I recall. And then after the assassination, that's what really points to his importance. They um, are, the FBI is investigating the case, and they decide that it, they should center the investigation on a single source in Dallas. And De Bruis is transferred right after the assassination from New Orleans to Dallas, and becomes in charge of directing the invest the FBI investigation in Dallas. So I wanted to ask him about all that. I don't remember now whatever I asked him. But here I found, but uh, without telling me, of course, I was taping him, but it turns out that De Bruis was also taping me and without asking my permission and had uh, not, not only got a tape, but he had transcribed the tape and fairly promptly sent the tape to what to Washington. Hoover was dead by then, but who, who I forget who was the FBI. It went to the head of the FBI in Washington. And as I looked at that tape, I mean, sorry, that transcript, it seemed to me that something important was missing. And I have this theory about a negative template. You know, if something is supposed to there is not there, then it's more important probably than the things that are there. And so I, I had a pretty, I don't, I have, now I have no, absolutely no idea what, what any of the things were there or not there, but at the time it was still fresh in my memory. And I wanted to get corroboration of what was missing. So when I was back in Berkeley, I phoned Brian, we're still friends, and I said, Brian, you still have the tapes, right? And he said, well, they're down in Montreal, but yet they're there. And so I said, could you please have them make a copy, send me the copy, and then I'll check what my tape says versus what the transcript made by De Bruis says. And I think there's go we're going to isolate something important missing. Well, I, as I say, I... I think I knew then what it was going to be, but I don't now. So the tape came, and it was great. Eagerly, I stuck it into a little tape recorder machine. The tape was blank. And it's quite easy. It's something to do with Gauss. You, you can erase a tape, especially those days. Yeah, the degaussing de guns. Yeah. That uh, had been degaussed. Thank you for the technical term. So I phoned Brian again. I said, can you make another copy and send me the second copy? And Brian said, Peter, we didn't make a copy. We just sent you the original. So we'll never know. But uh, the, I guess degaussing might happen in by accident in the transfer of the mails if they didn't put it in a proper envelope. But uh, 
you know, together with what happened in uh, Metairie and what happened in Quebec City, uh, we're getting the sense that people are watching this thing and are paying attention to it. And then finally, this is uh, this has to be probably still later. Uh, there have been the the show, as I say, a forty-five minute show was seen in Canada, and the CBC was managed to sell it to TV in, uh, I'm saying this from memory, but I think Britain, France, Germany, maybe some other countries, and there must be a record of this somewhere. But anyway, more than one foreign country. But you don't hear America in that list, and that's a story in itself that... Um, I think the the show was actually bought by Channel 13 in Dallas, which is the educational channel. This is all, of course, what I have gathered through the years. It's not my own research, just things I was told, that the, that the show was bought but never aired. And that's what you call, of course, catch and kill. And there's a great deal of that that goes on. Is the documentary available online now? Uh, that I don't know, but I do know, uh, maybe, I don't know if this is the, the most sensitive part of it or not, but uh, the part of it is uh, easily accessible if you know how to Google properly, and that is the part in the show where I interviewed Police Chief Curry in Dallas. You may, may, may have seen it yourself, and yeah. I describe what people said about uh, the, the grassy knoll and uh, those shots. People ran up the grassy knoll to try and catch the shooter. Um, and I and I said, and I gave all the evidence in summary form to Police Chief Curry, and I said, doesn't it make you think that there was a second shooter on the knoll? And he said, yes. <laughs> and he said, for you know, I, I can't explain it, but yes, that's that seems to be what it is. And again, my paraphrase is probably quite inaccurate because I am 95 now and not, not as crisp as I used to be in my memory. But um, that part has I, been... I recall that being basically the case, that he either he was quoted later, maybe in one of your books, or uh, I saw the thing originally, because I do remember that you're wearing like a beige uh, sport coat or something like that, right? If I remember right. gray. <laughs> yes, I and, think and, that. And at one point, you're... At one point, you're maybe making some, I don't know if it comes up in this segment or not, but you're making a kind of motion about the back of the head and so on in that conversation. And he did say something to the effect of like, yes, it does seem that there were more shooters. And uh, what I remember, it was quite windy that my hair was blowing. Um, so, uh, but uh, as a show, as a whole, whether it still exists or not, I don't know, but I can say quite confidently it was never shown in America. And somebody else who had nothing to do with the show in any respect said, oh, yes, that Channel 13 was famous for that, that they did cash, catch and kill on a regular basis for the... So um, it, all of this adds up to a picture that uh, Big Brother is watching. Uh, right. I, that must be the case. And then when you... When you stop and think about that and you think about the JFK Records Act and how they're supposed to declassify all records related to the assassination, there must be a paper trail related to these operations of uh, being people doing the messing with your investigation and so on. It makes it makes you realize that you just cannot get to the secrets. I mean, even the family jewels, for example, even when the CIA director is trying to get all these scandals it's actually quite limited what they include in there and i you know you wonder is the is the office of security are all the most sensitive things sort of kept in one place where like even the the president and dire, even the director of the cia might have trouble accessing let's them. start let's let's go backwards here first of all let's start with trump trump was a maverick he vowed to fight the deep state he vowed to fight the CIA in particular. He was very angry with, what was his name, Burns, the guy who um, became very anti-Trump. So he was anti-CIA. 
and here is a great chance to, for him to do something to prove his independence, to do what the law says, not to be a lawbreaker, but to observe the law and to release the remaining records. And he didn't. And if Trump is not going to do it, Biden's not going to do it, um, because they're much, you know, essentially the... I don't use the term deep state anymore, but the phenomenon, I call it a condition now. The reason I don't say deep state anymore is that, or even the deep political system, which is what I originally said back in 1993, because it, we don't, we're not really governed by a system. We're governed by a, 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 a kind of snake pit of oligarchs who sometimes uh, fight each other and sometimes gang up against the rest of the world. And uh, I think that the that Kennedy was killed because of a split among oligarchs, that Kennedy, very anxious to save the U.S. dollar, um, decided that we couldn't be uh, wasting U.S. dollars buying food for GIs in Vietnam. So he was, had already approved a plan to bring the bulk of them home. But other oligarchs allied with the military-industrial complex wanted very much to have that war. And here's a, a thought I'll just toss in, which most people won't believe, but having looked at all the things I've written through all the years about the CIA and drugs, I think that the people who are interested in maintaining a, a flow of uh, opiates and heroin from Southeast Asia to the United States, organized crime in other words, I think they would have had a motive to preserve the easiest way to get drugs back to America, which was to have a lot of GIAs, uh, GIs who would do the work for you. And we know that GIs did do that work for them. There was a really disgusting case where um, drugs were coming into this country in the coffins of soldiers who had been killed in Vietnam. So for all kinds of reasons, uh, what we can just say, it was not that the deep state killed Kennedy. It was that there were some oligarchs who approved, and I, I think... There was, I, I, as you know, Aaron. I did a technical piece about this that you, you have seen, that people in the Federal Reserve were shared his concern about the outflow of gold, and one way to stop the outflow of gold was to cut back on expensive foreign engagements. And putting troops in a foreign country is very expensive. So um, they, that was one group of oligarchs in New York, the Council on Foreign Relations, the banks, those people. And then another group of oligarchs had other reasons and, and killed them. I want to go back further. The different ways in which... Um, they never get to the bottom of investigating these things because that happened initially under Nixon. Nixon uh, also had trouble with the CIA, and he, I think he you know, created the DEA, and there are many people think that in creating the DEA, he was going to create a, an agency that would be, serve him directly and not go through a CIA director. I mean, there would be a director, but it would be more closely under his control. And at that point, he um, he his, uh, he put in as CIA director uh, uh, Jim Schlesinger, and Schlesinger ordered that they come up with what got called the family jewels, and that was supposed to be anything that would... Per reportedly linked the CIA to illegal acts had to be reported to say, well, you can go to the Mary Farrell Foundation website, and if you search for a CIA code word, J.M. Spur, S-P-U-R, you will come up with a document which lists the names of all the documents that were hidden in Ted Shackley's safe 
at the time that they were conducting the family jewels search. So they are not in the family jewels. And in fact, my reaction to the family jewels when I started looking at it, I, this is all stuff that's been in the newspapers. It's not yeah. new at all. Um, and uh, I don't know how many other things were hidden in other safes, but it's a very suggestive list because there's a reference to Paul Halliwell. And Paul Halliwell, to me, is one of the most mysterious men in the last history of Americans, last century of American history. He's usually called a CIA agent as of 1947. But I wonder if that isn't a cover. I really do. Because here the Mary Farrell Foundation has a million documents. I don't know how many of them, what percentage are CIA, but I would say the bulk of them are CIA. So we're probably talking about hundreds of thousands of CIA documents on the Mary Farrell Foundation. You Google for Paul Halliwell, and the last, and, and then specify you want CIA documents. The last time I did this, and I've done it more than once, you only get one hit. It's the hit of this document we don't have that was hidden in Ted Shackley's safe. And of course, Ted Shackley would have been a good man to hide it in because if there is something really, really, really uh, suspicious that the CIA has been involved in in that era of the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it, it was Shackley until they kicked him out and then he became involved with the, um, the Safari Club, which uh, is, uh, again, a higher level, now a, a global level, totally free from U.S. surveillance of any kind. Only one hit. Maybe it's changed now, but that's the way it was the last time I looked. Mystery man. I think he developed a connection with the World Commerce Corporation, and you have a bit, you know, now there's quite a lot out about that. People have written whole books about it. And the biographies of Donovan, uh, who was first head of OSS and then tried vainly to start the CIA under Truman until Hoover stopped that from happening. This is, again, oligarchs fighting. Behind the bureaucrats fighting, there were oligarchs fighting. Um, but I think that Private connections were established, and there are two names in particular who are both called loosely CIA agents. I don't think they were. Uh, the first is Paul. Well, yes, they could be agent. But Paul Hollywood worked for the CIA. He set up what became Air America. He set it up for the CIA. But Air America, although it's considered a CIA proprietary uh, corporation it's only was only 40% owned by the CIA the bulk of the money was Kuomintang money and um, it became very much involved in the shipping of drugs and the other name was a man who had been OSS oh dear uh, can you help me the man well, who said um, when uh, one of the things that Halliwell did for the CIA was to set up a corporation called Sea Supply Inc. But he was, in effect, nationalizing for the CIA. Sea there, by the way, is SEA, but it's with capital Southeast Asia Supply right. Inc. And what C Supply did was directly, directly related to the flow of drugs because it supplied the necessary things that were needed for the landlocked KMT troops in Burma that uh, they tried at one point to invade China, but it got nowhere. They were repulsed immediately. They didn't all go home and set up, uh, I don't know, restaurants or something. No, they stayed in business and ran the drug trade out of eastern Burma, which was not under control of Burma. It was tribal. And Sea uh, Supply was for the CIA under Operation Paper, was uh, supplying them. And Cat Inc., which became Air America, was flying in... Uh, People, stuff from Taiwan, 
And when they flew out back to Taiwan in that easy golden era of drugs, um, and they they flew back drugs. So here are two agencies both set up by Paul Halliwell, and they're both involved directly in the primary source of opium out of Southeast Asia. Uh, so that's why I go back to what I said earlier, that I think that's been a factor in all of the deep events. Um, and I, I, we don't have the time to do this on the show, but I think it was a factor in the Kennedy assassination. I'm not saying it was a key factor, but I'm saying it was a factor. I know, I think the key factor was that he was going to, a sense, um, scale back the U.S. involvement in Vietnam to a, a small group who would be in a training role, and that's all. And that, that I think, was big, big bucks to a great many oligarchs. The other guy you were thinking of, was it Willis Byrd? Yes, thank you, Willis Byrd. And there is, you know, the, the Willis Byrd and the ambassador, Truman's ambassador to Thailand were at, they they were total cross purposes. Um, the ambassador was trying to make uh, uh, Thailand more democratic, and Willis Byrd got involved in a successful coup attempt that handed the control of Thailand over to the Northern Army. The Northern Army was the one that had been uh, controlling during the war had. Have, they'd been in uh, eastern Burma where the drugs were coming from. They were the ones involved with the drug traffic. And uh, th the man who emerged as the dictator in Thailand as a result of this coup was a man called, uh, oh gosh, again, Pao Srianand. Is that right? I think so. It General right. Pao. And uh, newspaper reports about him called him the biggest joke. Uh, Two, two different reports about him, the biggest dope trader in the world and the richest man in the world. Um, that's a title that has been passed on to others, but very often people connected to the dope traffic, which is huge, much bigger than people give it credit for. That I think yeah. the, the, the chief commodities underlying global trade are petroleum, armaments, and drugs. Uh, and... Uh, that, and, and Willis Byrd took part in a coup to make that easier to happen in Thailand. And the this wasn't really the CIA. In those days, you had both the CIA and something called OPC, the Office of Policy Coordination, which is, tells you nothing, which is on purpose, because it was doing the dirty tricks for the CIA. Um, the first CIA it was sort of sort of State Department and sort of CIA, but really doing its own thing. Yes, it it was under control from two departments, which meant it wasn't under control at all. If you 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 can't you know if it's two departments, it's marginal to each of them. And eventually, of course, what happened was that um, Alan Dulles was appointed to the CIA to control it from the CIA side. And when Eisenhower became president and Truman, who didn't really did not like the idea of CIA and fought it and lost, he lost out to Alan Dulles, who was at the time a private lawyer in New York, but with a with better set of oligarchs. And when Truman was gone, the whole of OPC was then adopted totally into the CIA, and Alan Dulles became the new director of the CIA and started working uh, against Truman uh, right after the election, even before Truman was still the president. Even before, really, they were already making plans for Ajax, for example. Are you talking about that's Guatemala, right? My memory's bad now. The Ajax is Iran. Oh, Iran, yes, and, well, yeah, and yeah. they began. They began planning before the, uh, I, yes, I believe, well, even before the election, but yeah. definitely before the inauguration. Uh, yes, and and that's exactly what I was going to say, um, because it was really the British who who really insisted on uh, getting British petroleum back into British hands, a hundred percent British hands. Somebody said recently on TV. We had to do it because otherwise Britain would have gone broke. 
Britain had been, the British economy right. had been shattered by World War II. And for people to get, and they were still severely rat rationed in Britain in 1952. I mean, we did it right off the debts. That was, we, they should have probably written off the debts, World War II debts, but they didn't. That was the key. But they to wrote really, off, I think, I, the German that, debts, but not the British debts. No, and that was on purpose, I believe, Absolutely. to have leverage over destroying the pound, the pound sterling area. Because there was a talk of the British Commonwealth is going to become a, a new trading area. Well, America had its own ideas on a new trading area, and it was absolutely incompatible with the idea of a British Commonwealth being a trading area. So think about it. Germany lost the war. Germany was the enemy, and... The United States forgave the German debts because they were just interested in building up Germany to make sure it didn't go communist. And Britain, the ally, didn't get its debts forgiven. And uh, so it's the, the, the de demolition of its empire and commonwealth. The empire was finished, but the commonwealth was a, a workable idea, but it was shattered by U.S. policy. That... The, we could have a whole show just about that, but um, yes. And but just to come back to uh, Alan Dulles, in right after the election in November '52, Truman's going to be president for two more, three, almost three more months. Um, and uh, Alan is now working full time with the British too. And by the way, uh, uh, the British had asked. Uh, Truman to support them in the Ajax. And what Truman did instead, he sent Harriman to India, to, to Iran, and Harriman sat down with Mossadegh, who was the head, the democratically elected head of Iran. And Harriman offered Mossadegh the deal that had already been worked out in Saudi Arabia. You get 50%, we get 50%. We would have been the British still. There was that it was still British Petroleum at that point. And Mossadegh said yes. And uh, so uh, Harriman told Truman, and Truman told, I guess it was Churchill then, uh, yes, you can, you can have half the returns from, from the oil fields in Iran. And they said, no, that's not good enough. We need it all. And I've already said what they needed it all because British was on, Britain was on the edge of bankruptcy. And uh, so they had to do dirty tricks. And of course, many innocent people were killed in the action that took place in, in Tehran to, to complete the, and they put in the Shah, and the Shah put in uh, Savak, which was a killer intelligence agency that tortured and killed. That's our, that's our gift. To, that's America's gift to the world is torture agencies, killing agencies. And that's why people like me who love America are just really want very, very much to make the necessary changes that we have a different agenda. Well, of course, America's taken care of that itself. It's, it's made such bad blunders recently, the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war. America is taking care of what I wanted to see happen. America is self-demolishing. And it's. I'm going to say to you in this interview what I said to you privately before. There was a vote recently in the UN with the world, including NATO countries and EU countries, voting against the United States, Great Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Ukraine, Israel, and one more country, Lithuania, eight. It was the world against eight, what I call the Anglosphere and its top clients right now, Ukraine, Israel, and Lithuania has its own fight with Putin, would not vote on the Putin side. The Putin-China side swept that vote and that's an indication. I can tell you, I was in the third committee myself, advising the the. I was in the the seat behind, but I told the person in front what to vote for, and I got my arm twisted plenty. And America never lost a vote 
in the UN in those days was America, actually, who introduced the idea that the Assembly could overrule the Security Council because America faced the Soviet veto in the Security Council, but they could muster the votes in the Assembly. That worked then, but long ago it started working against America, and it's uh, America's has... I think most Americans have no idea how much American power in the world as a whole. Its soft power is still great. Its hard power is is in tatters at this point. And what the tatters remain are being lost in Ukraine and lost in Gaza and may not... I don't know what things are going to be like at the end of the year, but... Yeah. It's more complicated if you think of the, the soft power in that they still have a lot of cultural influence, but I, I think that the way that that could be translated into political power, which is generally what they mean when they talk about soft power, that's actually also diminished as well because – so it's like they, they have a cultural resonance because of different things that, that are popular around the world, but it seems that increasingly the narratives about – American benevolence and the things that we can use to persuade people over to our side these days are are shrinking and shrinking to where we get what you see uh, that you were just describing, where in the UN, it's basically like a strange, almost like a white power coalition, even though they wouldn't call it that, against the rest of the world. And then the arrogance of thinking like, we're the correct ones, the rest of the world, all of these people who just happen to not be white, they must be wrong. I mean, it's so silly. In the vote I referred you to, I think we lost the majority of the whites. The European countries, all of them except Ukraine and Lithuania, voted with yeah. Putin and with Xi in China. Uh, and they're coming up, you know, they're planning this new BRICS currency. They, it's a, that's a whole long story that's been Well, they've set up a new SWIFT. There's a new alternative to the yeah. SWIFT system, too. And, the you US know, and America to again shooting itself... Uh, it's you know put put in, in, instilling all these embargoes on the on Russia is just uh, consolidating the alternative uh, modes of trade trade and finance and yep. excluding itself from what the, the bulk of the world I think will be doing. I may say and they also forced they forced Russia to embark on a path of massive import substitute industrialization, which is exactly what may allowed the U.S. To, to do to become wealthy and powerful, and which is what they used to re- recommend to developing countries before neoliberalism because it was just a way to modernize. And the U.S. made them do that very, very smart thing that was very much in their own national interest. They've increased – I mean, Russia has resources and latent industrial capacity – a big population, and neoliberalism, they hadn't totally recovered from it, but this, I believe that this war and then the consequences of it have revived the Russian economy in a way that it was just so incredibly stupid what they did, what the U.S. did there. Right. However, you know, I always like to look at the bright side of things, and uh, I do want to say that um, America does have residual cultural influence, soft power. And, of course, our culture, we could spend the whole hour critiquing our culture. It's racist, it's sexist, it's, it's, uh, there's a great deal wrong with our culture. But when you look at the cultures in the world today, it, it, it has some aspects of it which are worth defending and spreading. And one of them is... It's essentially freer than any other culture that I'm aware of. Uh, you and I can have this broadcast uh, podcast in America. We couldn't have it in China or in Russia. I think we'd have trouble having it in, well, Britain, I don't know. Maybe France, probably not. Germany, I'm not sure. Um, I think that, uh, and I, this is the theme of my book, actually, Reading the Dream, that uh, Hannah Arendt distinguished between two forms of power. She said there's power by persuasion and power by coercion. And in her language, she said the only real power is power by persuasion. Power by coercion is a sign that you fail to persuade 
and you fall back on something that you shouldn't do it. And I, both in poetry and in prose, I seize on that distinction between power from above, power from below, power from above, coercion, power from below, persuasion. And over the, and looking in my book at 5,000 years of history, I'd say for all the setbacks and the disappointments that made people stop believing in progress on the political level, what you see on the cultural level is much more clearly a, a case of the human mind growing, developing, becoming more and more able to persuade less and less kicked around by coercion. Trump got into um, trouble by saying that uh, if he'd been alive during the Civil War, he would have negotiated the, the end to slavery. Uh, I doubt Trump could have done it. I, I doubt anyone could have done it then. But no, Dan you, you Ellsberg couldn't have. The more also, you look at what happens, it, Dan, that's what Dan he, Ellsberg. Lincoln made, wasn't trying to outlaw slavery. Lincoln wasn't outlawing slavery. It was. It really was not. But Trump would say that because he's so arrogant. Yes, but I, you know, it, it sounds awful. But but Dan Ellsberg also frequently asked me, "Was it worth six hundred thousand lives to get rid of slavery by a war when it was going to go? It couldn't have survived much longer anyway. Not as chattel slavery. I argue we still have slavery. It's just now it's wage slavery. It's mostly the real wage slavery is exported to places like China." There's a good book by a friend of mine called Dying for the iPhone, and that's a pun on the word dying because it what it talks about people in the factories in China who commit suicide because the conditions are so terrible there. So it's not like we're getting rid of poverty or anything like that. That will take a long, long time. But on the cultural level, in the terms of what we want to achieve the ways in which we want to change the world, those cultural goals are getting, I think, better and better over time. It's not a flawless record, but compared to politics, it's a much better. And if you, it, it, if you, and if you want to hope for the world, I would not hope for our politics right now, which are in a very, very bad shape. But I would hope that our culture is making the kinds of progress that will eventually produce also a better politics. Right. I would I think that that there's the possibility for that and on top of it going along with this theme of imperial decline is just the other places in the world are making it that it's materially impossible for the US for the western imperialism to continue the way that it has and it's and that I that to, what's frightening to me is that the mindset of uh, just thinking of that in the elite circles, it's like you're conditioned not to even think of that as a possibility. You're, it's basically the the prime directive is to reproduce hegemony uh, indefinitely, and the idea that like you're going to have to deal with the fact that that that's impossible. This it doesn't even seem to enter into the discussion among people that are actually are around the levers of power right now. And yeah, that that is scary because they have nuclear weapons and such. Well, that you you yes, <clears throat> I didn't mention nuclear weapons and I should have. You're quite right. Everything you just said is absolutely correct. But um I want to add to it that American hegemony is collapsing. But China has real problems too. I mean, they, they've got a very strong political control and their economy is suffering very badly as a result of that. And some people are speculating that she may be ousted in not too distant future because he's so bad for the Chinese economy as opposed to Deng, Deng Xiaoping who is so good for the Chinese economy. I, I don't know, be, but I'm I just want to add Russia too. These Russia, Russia is real problems. But they all, all the main powers. India has real problems. Modi, you know, there's Trumps all over the world now. We lost Bolsonaro in uh, Brazil, but we've gained a new Trump down there in, I forget his name, in Argentina. 
Uh, we have a Trump in Italy. Modi is uh, worse than Trump. I mean, he's really... Yeah. Uh, India is a very bad fascist. state. Uh, and so you could call them that fairly. They, they've erected a statue to the assassin of Gandhi. I mean, that's how much India has changed in a century. They once worshipped the memory of Gandhi and the politicians. When Gandhi was alive, the politicians listened to Gandhi because of his his power in the country, soft power. And uh, now they're erecting, they have erected a statue to his assassin, who was very much a Modi man, and still is. He's still around. He's a Modi man. But that's yeah. Modi. India has problems. They all have problems. Politics isn't working anywhere. I think I would say fundamentally, the global economic system, the political economy of the world, is not working. And uh, something big has to happen there, which I don't. I'm not bright enough to make any suggestions. Uh, but um, through it all, the culture will survive. And I hope we have a soft easing into... There's going to be major disruptions, and I hope the disruptions are peaceful and that not too many people will be killed. And the only consolation is if a lot of people are killed in the next century, and this is certainly what a lot of people are worrying about, or key people, intelligent people are worried about, if there's a lot of people killed, it will be a bigger disruption, and there will be a bigger change to a new and better order based on my looking at what has happened in previous similar disruptions which happen every half millennium or so. That's my book. Very good. Now, is there anything else that you wanted to add about the uh, documentary before we get go further in any other direction? I wanted to make sure that we did cover uh, what you wanted to mention. I think that you were going to say something about a Miami mobster. Did you, uh, what did you, what, what, well, what that, was yes, that about? I think I talked about that. It was the, uh, the guy who told me privately that they were working with the CIA in those days. I got you. He, I'm just looking at your notes here. And I, when you were saying that, that didn't register as Miami mobster, but yes, that's, that's right. No, so when no. you, uh, if we can get back to that, because I do want to make sure that we that we discuss this uh, as well as we we can. I want to try to I'm going to try to find it online. What was the title that they gave it? I mean, the show was called uh, The Fifth Estate, but did they did the episode have a title? Oh, it did, and I'm I'm sure it's it's somewhere online, but I don't remember what okay. it was. Well, I will I will look for that one. You have to be careful because. It was a segment of the show. See, I don't. I, maybe it didn't have a title because it was forty-five minutes. Later, yeah. it, when they sold it abroad, it probably did have a title abroad. But um, and they played it again, I think, in Canada. Um, I don't know how the. Pre, I'm not sure that the um, that, that they may have had a working title, but I, you know, I think it was just they they opened with the uh, anchor saying "Welcome back" right. and so on, like so, sixty minutes or something. Yeah, yeah, it was a sixty minutes, right? Okay, right. This was, I mean, that the the people that were brought to bear on that were, I mean, that's the the way that you're describing it as far as the police, you know, them putting you in a hotel that was a. Uh, connected to Marcello and um, the police coming in, uh, shining yeah. light on you yeah. to perhaps maybe just to disturb you, you know, to make you f feel like you're paranoid or well, that, they, I had that the you weren't, weren't getting a were, good night's They were sleep, looking for more than just me because uh, <laughs> even in the two inches, they could flick up and down. I remember the light moving around a bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's typical uh, the ways that they would do this. And they may not have even known why they were doing it in the first place, you know? Well, I mean, the sheriff's probably just doing it on orders. I think some people are hoping they could blackmail me into, uh, uh, you know, not saying the things I was saying and saying something else instead. I'm, I'm sure they do. I have a whole chapter in Deep Politics and the Death of JFK about how they use sex to control politicians. And they could right, have. that seems to be 
all over the news today. And I mean, it's kind of in the backdrop of things that are going on now with Ep with Epstein's network. And he's, he's, he was protected by intelligence. And it's looking back at Maxwell and uh, for other reasons, it, you can think it was uh, Israeli that, that had been outsourced to the Israelis. And so as these stories come out recently, there's more disclosures. They released some documents. One wonders if it's the U.S. deep states, uh, some element of it, um, pushing back against is it the Israeli deep state in, in, in one way or another, because there just seems to be uh, a lot of sort of conflict or fighting in the uh, on Mount Olympus or something these days as we try to determine what the, how the U.S. is going to respond to these various situations that that definitely impact pillars of the American establishment or oligarchy or deep state or whatever we there want to call a, it. There is definitely fighting on Mount Olympus. Professor Peter Del Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Aaron, for, for making this happen. I'd like to thank Dana Chavaria for producing this episode and Mock Orange for providing the music. As ever, it was a joy to record another session with Peter and to be able to present it to our audience. I cannot think of another figure who has done what Peter has done for so long and with such acuity. Who else has devoted so much to minding the darkness and minding the light? I cannot control these things oh.